You're listening to 100 p.m. episode 44. You're listening to 100 p.m., the show where we're interviewing 100 expert product people from startups to enterprise and everything in between to bring you all the actionable advice you need to succeed in product management. Today's guest is Margaret Jastrzewski from ShopRunner. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com, the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics, recommended resources, and online learning. I'm Susanna Bate, product coach, startup mentor, and host of today's show. Let's dive right in and say hello to MJ. I'm Margaret Jastrzewski. My title as ShopRunner is SVP of Enterprise Products. Now, I don't know if you know this about yourself, but you are a bit of a legend here in the Chicago product community. Am I bringing this to your attention for the first time? Completely. I am flabbergasted at the idea that I might be a legend. So, you know, what's been so interesting for me being here in the city and getting immersed in a new product management community, especially having spent so much time doing that in Southern California, is you learn what are the different companies? What is the tech that people are focused on? Like I've learned, for example, that Chicago has an emerging kind of data science platform race to the top, a lot of players in it. And then there are these cults or hubs, Orbits being one, Groupon being another, I think Grubhub being that it seems like everybody who's working in product at some point worked at one of those places. And then if they did, they worked with you and then they went on to do other things. But then they say, oh, well, if you're talking to product managers, you have to talk to Margaret because she's the best. So no pressure. No pressure. All right. I'll I'll do my best. All right. So have you been in this game a long time? I've been in Chicago, I moved to Chicago in 2000 for a startup, and ever since I've been in Chicago, I've been in tech. Uh, so yeah, 17 years, going strong so far. Now, a startup in 2000, I would imagine, was a very different kind of beast than startup as maybe many of our listeners even kind of come to know what they are. Can you take us back in time and oh what, what does that look like? <laughs> I mean, it was glorious. It was amazing. A startup in 2000 versus a startup today is so, so different. Of course, back then we had no idea. We had no idea what it was going to become or kind of what the community would become. But I started as a, a QA person and then I taught myself how to develop uh, being part of the company. And I had you know, my box under my computer. We had our server farm in the closet. I taught myself how to develop with a, a VB book that was a thousand pages long with a disc in the back. I had to install that on my on my box underneath <laughs> my desk. I had to go through all the exercises. Um, so there there were no frameworks. You know, there was the internet, but that was mostly Napster at that point back in the day. And again, kind of the frameworks, the community, none of that was really there. Uh, so it really was kind of us figuring out how to do it ourselves. And then we built our software. We would install it on. Back then, even it was a CD, not even a DVD, and we had to send that to our clients. They had to install it. I mean, just the effort you had to go through just to get like code out the door was just insane. Just to say, you started it in quality assurance, and I mean no disparagement here, but I don't know anybody that like set out in their career with that as their desire. So I sense there was like a path that you were exploring before you ended up doing QA at a startup. Was there completely? What was that path? Completely. So I graduated from Emory in 99. 
and I graduated with math and econ, double major. I love math, I love patterns, and I have that kind of more analytical and kind of structured and systems type thinking and, and mindset. But I started interviewing at banks and um, I interviewed at Susquehanna Trading Company, so it was a training firm, right? And I just, I hated it. I hated these companies, they hated me. You know, I had bleached hair, I had a nose ring, I thought I was cool. <laughs> and I, mean, and I, I just, it, there wasn't like an emotional fit, right? There wasn't a personality fit. So I was completely confused. I had no idea what to do. You know, back in 99, it was like, sweet, there's this internet thing. There's this bubble. Like, all these companies are getting funding. I don't even know what funding means, but it seems interesting. So let me go do it. And so I started looking around, talking to my friends. I was in Atlanta. And I was like, I want to move to a bigger city. I'm going to go work in this tech thing. And so I happened to find a company, got hooked up with a company here in Chicago, and they took a little bit of a chance on me and took a little bit of a chance on them. And I said, sweet, I'll come learn it. You just teach me what to do. I know I'm smart. I can do math. So you, you can help me understand this. And I moved up here and I haven't looked back. It was an amazing opportunity to get started there. And then it's just, I've had just amazing opportunities kind of all along the way. I've been very lucky. So you were, you were doing QA and you took it upon yourself to learn programming just because you wanted to understand more of what was going on. And then were you able to transition into a developer role? Mm -hmm. I was. Actually, this is a really great call out for, for that company. Even back in the day, it was a company named Tolution, not around anymore. And they officially, we were a 30-person company. They officially put in a training program for people that wanted to be developers. Like The company couldn't find enough developers, so they thought if they could get people in and train them. But the fact that I was a woman and the fact that my boss was a woman, they were really excited about that and they wanted to help facilitate that. So they, you know, on nights and weekends, I taught myself how to do it, but then they were willing to transition me into the developer role. And it's just, you know, I look back and I'm like, it was so forward thinking back in the day, you know, for them to, to take that. It was kind of an apprenticeship program. I don't want to dive too deeply off the bat into diversity, which is, of course, a big topic, but given that you were programming as a woman with sort of one other female colleague and we're talking about you know almost 20 years ago what was that like then was it worse than kind of what we experience today and read about today or was it strangely better and different because everybody was still at the beginning yeah I, I don't know any different you know I had that experience and that was the environment in which I worked and so because that's what I was comfortable with, because of that experience, like I, I didn't know that there could be a different way, or there was a different way. I was lucky that the men that I worked around, the people that I worked around were great guys. You know, and I think kind of back in the day, there wasn't really this sense of programmer. You know, there, there wasn't a culture or community around it. It really was a lot more of kind of the, the geeky people and more the outcasts. And so I think just by nature of that, you're already a little bit of a misfit. And so I never felt like I was different because I was a woman. And I think I'm, I'm lucky because it occurs to me second. You know, I don't often think of myself as I'm a woman first and then thus I'm going to be this way or that way in this environment. It's more like, this is the environment. How do I approach this environment? And then, oh shit, wait, it's a room full of dudes, that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so so it, was, it was a great environment. I, I think we were able to thrive and, and do a great job. And, you know, kind of on the bigger scale in which we're working now, the bigger scale and from a community perspective, you get to see a lot more instances of where, you know, maybe we have a better, we have an opportunity in front of us to be better from a diversity and culture perspective. Right. How did you finally end up into a product role? So I did QA, did development, realized I was never going to be a great developer. So I moved into consulting, did IT consulting for a little bit, learned how to do project planning and learned how to think of my feet and be in front of people and 
you know, set expectations and stuff like that. But I wanted to get off the road. So I was traveling every week, five days a week, and I didn't own anything. I wanted to get off the road, and I didn't own anything that I was doing. And so I started looking around to work for a, a brand or a company that I could actually just own and be responsible for my my own work, you know. And, and if I was successful, great. If I failed, great. You know, there's, there's opportunities to learn both of those things. But I wanted to be able to own it. In consulting, you tell people what to do, and they might implement it, they might not, and you know, you never actually really get to reap, reap the rewards or kind of face the music. Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely relate to that. Some projects you're happy to see go. You're like, phew, bye. But more and more, especially as you get clearer about the types of clients that you like to work with, you can fall in love with the product and then you're sort of clinging and they're like, no, we're good. You know, thanks for helping us insource a team. Thanks for helping us set up process we're good now, let go, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, I get that. What was the, the first product then? Where did you go from? So I went into, I went to Orbitz. Orbitz Cult. Or, the Orbitz Cult. This is where I first joined the Orbitz Cult and started drinking the Kool-Aid. And I am not going to lie, it was amazing. It was such an amazing experience. I was there six years. And it, I mean, absolutely Orbitz University. And I would wear that t-shirt proud. <laughs> um, and the people I got to meet, and the things I got to do were, were amazing. But when I started, I was a product manager for an API, uh, for our API set, and it's really our private label group. So what we did was package up our Orbitz technology and basically resell it to companies that needed travel solutions but didn't want to build it all themselves. Right. right. So as back-end technology, you know, and I had to learn on the job. My, my boss at the time, it was like, I want you to be responsible also for our RSS feeds. And I was like, sweet, I'll do that. And then, of course, I turn around to Google, what's an RSS feed? <laughs> no idea. Um, after you accepted the position. After I accepted the position, of course. I'll figure it out. <laughs> so I was at Orbitz for six years, started as product manager, and I ended up, when I left, I was director of product strategy for the whole group for private label. And in that time, the scale at which we operated I think we were doing zero amounts of bookings through our APIs when I first started because we hadn't built them. By the time I left, we were doing over a billion dollars of travel transactions. Wow. And then, um, you know, the handful of years later that I've been out of the, away from Orbitz, they've, they're doing multiple billions of dollars for those products. So the scale at which, you know, I got to operate and the things I got to see was, you know, I learned. I learned really quickly and I learned on the job. Let's talk about back-end products for a moment because... Part of what we seek to do on this show is bring a broader definition to what is product management and what are all of the ways in which it can manifest and, and how can it look differently. And I think our instinct when we think about what is product is to think about consumer products in particular. If we're experienced in working in organizations that are using SaaS products of some kind or another, Maybe, you know, Basecamp is a big Chicago organization. So, you know, we're familiar with those types of B2B services. When you say my product is our API that, again, it's not what we would readily think of. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, how does the role, you would have to answer this kind of retrospectively, of course, but knowing now what you know, looking back on what you were doing, how is the experience of being a kind of back-end product manager different? Mm -hmm. I think it's a great question. I think there's a spectrum of companies, right? So my expertise and most of my experience has really been on the B2B side to where I'm selling products or, or sharing products with other companies rather than consumers. That being said, at Orbit Six Years, there's a huge component of the B2C side. So I was lucky because... I was selling products to companies that were selling 
solutions to, to end consumers. So that was B2B to C. So anytime I had a question or anytime I needed to understand, like, how do you do A-B testing or how do you do marketing in broad market scale and, you know, kind of some of these things that as an API person, I didn't, really have, to, I didn't have to deal with. I had somebody I could turn around in orbits and say, help me understand. There's this world where I think kind of these big B2C companies also have this kind of large B2B side. You know, there's always partnerships, there's always solutions. Like Groupon is another great example. They're a marketplace in Chicago, but they're a marketplace. And so they have a whole world of merchants and then they have a whole world of consumers. And so the products that you and I see as consumers, it's that's what you see on Groupon.com. But there's a whole experience around the merchants that Groupon has to think about and Groupon has to solve for. Same with Airbnb. Think about the entire um, homeowner experience and how do they sign up and how do they understand if the solution, you know, if Airbnb is good for them or not. So, you know, for me, there's this B2B component. Like if you're in a B2C company, there's also a strong B2B component. Since Orbitz, I, I left in the beginning of 2013. I've worked at a couple, you know, growth stage companies in Chicago that were entirely B2B. A company named Signal, they used to be Bright Tag, and a company named Nerded Science. And we were selling our solutions specifically to other companies. And it's, you know, the scale at which you operate is different. You know, you're hoping to win a handful of companies a year, right? You're not, you're not hitting millions. You know, you're hitting tens or twenties or hundreds maybe. And the level of investment um, in terms of educating companies about your solution is very different. You know, there's a lot more documentation. There's a lot more marketing position a lot more um, partnership kind of throughout the process. So I really like that side of it. Like I said, it's been most of my experience. But I think depending on the, the type of person you are, depending on what type of company you're in, you can go straight B2B or this B2B2C opportunity I think is also really interesting. You know, you brought up a couple obviously well-known sort of marketplace type products. And I say this a lot to people who come to me, they have an idea for a marketplace product or an ecosystem. And I say, I want you to know that you've immediately duplicated or triplicated all of the work that exists because it's one, it's enough to bring one product into market that might have two or three, you know, distinct user personas. It's another thing to have to think about because you're right, the hosting side of Airbnb is it's an own business with its own user goals and objectives. And yes, as a solution, it matches a very specific need of a homeowner with a very complementary need of a traveler. But that's like the beginning and the end of where it's simple. Yes. The rest is just mountains of work. There's also, you know, the thing that, that I come across a lot too is there's the buyer persona versus user persona a lot in B2B. So who you sell to is not always actually the person you who's going to use your product at the end of the day. Oftentimes you're selling to a C-level or a VP-level because they're the ones that can sign off on procurement. They can sign the contract. But you know, once you install your software, there's the day-to-day person that has to maintain it and implement it, et cetera. You know, in, in the world that I'm in today with, with ShopRunner, we have JavaScript that our merchants install on their pages. And so we have a developer persona, right? Our developers on our merchant side and retailer side have to be able to understand our code easily implement it easily and be able to move quickly through that. And so that's a part of actually what I focus on my job today is how to make that experience as seamless as possible and as easy as possible. Yeah, and, and I think the levers of value and use are important to understand as you framed it. If, if you're selling B2C, then talking to a person about 
what would be valuable to them, that's when you're talking to the customer. Would you pay for this? Would you use it? Would you tell your friends? And then you might have to, even within the same conversation, shift toward, well, tell me about some of the other products you currently use. Why do you like that product? What are some features that you respond to? So you're covering a a spectrum with a single person. And in some ways that's easier. The minute that you carve all those out and realize, well, we got to talk to the CFO about how this is going to impact the bottom line. But then we also got to talk to the creative directors about what kind of tools the designers like to use and their particular. And then we got to check in with accounting. I mean, it's a lot of very different types of people. I would think that that would could quickly lead to losing the product vision when there's so many different users in the ecosystem and they're so different in their needs. Can you speak to that at all from your own experience, either challenges you faced or or how you have stayed away from that potential pitfall? I think staying away. (laughs) I think I've been able to find myself into plenty of pitfalls. and Well, fortunately, I mean, I think that's how we all learn, right? But when I think about... The vision side, especially with B2B, the vision side is really, really important in the sales cycle, right? And kind of getting people to buy in initially. The implementation, the usage on that, like that's where you've got to really nail it. Because oftentimes, you know, you you sell again to the C-level or the VP level, but you have the day-to-day managers and directors that are using this tool. If that experience sucks for them, if they hate it, that VP is going to know about it. You know, if it's not delivering real value, if you're not actually helping their lives, if you're making it harder, then it's going to come back around just as much as if you were a B2C site and you're not delivering real value, you're going to see your consumers drop off. <laughs> Uber. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I had to say it. So I think, you know, there there is this world of referenceability and quality that you really still have to think about. And you have to make sure, like, you nail it on the little things because then that then you're, you're going to get that repeat. You know, people will re-sign the contract, they'll re-up. But then there is a life cycle to it because when they re-up, are you still delivering value? Has their business changed? And that's where the vision comes back into play, where you still have to come back and be like, hey, okay, let me come back and paint this next long-term vision. You've been with us for a year or two or three. You know, you need to still know kind of where we're going what we're doing. How big was Orbitz sort of when you joined and, and when you left, just to give our listeners a sense of that? It was about 1,500 people the whole time I was there. Okay. So it didn't it didn't really expand or contract too much while I was there. The change really happened kind of within my group. So when I started, I was the very first, I was the official, first official product manager. My boss was product director, and he kind of was painting more of the vision. But I was the first official product manager owning this stuff and owning our APIs. And you know, by the time I left, we had probably three or four product managers, director, we had, I think, probably like 60 to 80 developers. And when I started again, I think we might have had six or seven. Um, So the scale at which we operated, we really became a business within the Orbitz arm and an entire strategy within the Orbitz arm. Um, So kind of, again, went from pretty small, I I almost think of it as like a startup within this big company environment, to becoming a significant part of the revenue generation of the company. Right, because what I was really going to ask you is, was that jarring to go from that environment to, you said that, you know, since then you've mostly been working in, in kind of early stage growth organizations, and I don't know, the scale of that's probably 30, 40 people at most, but given that it was more startup inside, was it 
actually more seamless than it sounds from the outside? Oh, I mean, it was amazing. So seamless. Like, I made no mistakes. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I sense sarcasm. <laughs> Tell us about your experience of going, you know, you rise, you ascended through the orbit's ranks, you, you, you exited as a director level person, and then you were back to small time shops yeah director level but then you're like director of one yeah basically basically so you've got it orbits was great i mean 1500 people i actually often think like you know you and i have talked about maybe advice or kind of how to think about like young people kind of coming up into the product role or people early in their product careers i I do think working for big companies is such a great education because big companies are big for a reason it's because they've faced adversity and they figured out kind of the operationalization of themselves and they've worked through the kinks and they've got a lot of great processes in place. Sometimes they might be over-processed, but that's okay. They've got a lot of the great foundation and they had to get that in place to get to the scale that they are. So my experience at Orbitz was phenomenal. Like I learned what product was and I had a strong community. I mean, I'm still really close to all the, the product people there because I respected them so much. They were so smart and I learned so much from them. So when I had a question about how to do something, there were plenty of people for me to turn around and either emulate or ask advice from. Um, and you know, through practice, I was able to get better and kind of learn kind of all the foundational stuff. When I left Orbitz, I went to a company named Brightag, now Signal, amazing company, you know, with amazing technology, but it was a 30, 40 person company. So I came in and I was like, okay, well, what is our strategy and how does our strategy feed into our goals and how do our goals feed into our, you know, product epics and then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I was like, and we're going to meet on a quarterly basis for this and we're going to meet on a weekly basis for this. And I was very kind of like, okay, this is the structure, you know. <laughs> Seriously, I almost got laughed out of the company. <laughs> um, it wasn't the right fit. Like my kind of heaviness of how product operated in a company that, that was that small and needed to be a lot more nimble didn't fit. And so I had to learn really quickly, like, what was important and what wasn't. And, you know, what do I take from my past experience and pull forward? And then what do I, what do I slough off and, and learn new? Right. So what is important then, given that you have those kind of two extreme experiences, if you were giving advice to somebody who was just launching a company that was, you know, 10 or 20 people, maybe gets hired in to be the product manager in that position, what would you tell them to focus on and what would you tell them to ignore? Granted, um, if anyone's listening and then you take Margaret's advice, yeah. this is, you know, a recommendation only. A recommendation. There's Don't send no, a nasty letter yeah, later. No binding legality. Yes. This. Okay, now um, go ahead and yeah. tell us. <laughs> I, you know, I can get into maybe some of the, the, the specifics, but I think more broadly, in a small company, you can't be scared to try. You can't be scared to start something. Again, at Orbitz, if I wanted to start something, I would turn around and be like, how did somebody else do it? At a small company, chances are you have, nobody else has done it. You have to be willing to start, and you have to be okay starting badly. You know, you just need to have that starting point to get the conversation going, and to get the dialogue going, and to be like, okay, this is what I think is best. Can I put it out there and then see how people react or respond? From an advice perspective, I would say don't be scared to try, because the more you try, the more refined you're going to get. The first time you try, you're going to suck at it. That's just fine. You know, be okay with that. Right. And I think the other thing that goes along with that a lot of the time is 
just as you say, no one else is going to know what to do. No one else is really going to tell you what to do either, which is why startups can be awesome to work at. If like you're like me, I don't like being told what to do, so yes. that's perfect. But some people prefer that structure. Give me a constraint, and then I know where to be inside of. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I think I, I tell the line of both. Like, I absolutely am like, I do have that kernel inside me that's like, screw you, authority. <laughs> you're not telling me what to do. Well, that nose ring, so. Oh, you know, I know, yeah. I think she I doesn't just, have the nose ring anymore. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I thought it was so cool. But, you know, th there's definitely kind of that, that sense of, like, you're not going to tell me what to do, but then there's also, like, I have no flipping clue what to do. Like, I am so clueless. Or I'm scared. Like, there's a lot of things riding on this. You know, this is, it's really, we're a small company. We're resource constrained. You know, we've never done this before, and we need to get it right. And so I think that there can be a little bit of analysis paralysis. And so for me, like, work through that, you know, just try to rely on your allies. I mean, I've listened to some of your other uh, interviews. They're amazing. Kind of, I think some of the common themes are, it's like a, a large part of product is influencing and it's diplomacy and kind of pulling people together. And so that's where you have to be the one starting the conversation. There's a, a great Dilbert strip about agile and it's, you know, something to the effect of we're going agile and it's like, what does that mean? It means no more process. <laughs> and uh, so I use that as a, as a segue to ask, are there, in your opinion, some fundamental processes that can really help you from day one, even if you're small, even if you're not yet at a thousand people that and even if you have to iterate on them, and, and what would some of those be in your opinion? I think um, one of the things that I've just seen over and over is just get really crisp and clear on what the priorities are. And, and then make sure that you, you get crisp on the immediate priorities, but don't get confused with that like for the long-term vision, right? So every company you'll work for, every company I've worked for, there's like the big vision and green things, et cetera. But you still have to deliver today, and you still have, again, limited time, resources, et cetera. So getting really, really clear and getting everybody's buy-in in terms of, like, these are the top three things we're working on or five things or whatever your capacity is, like, you have to drive that, and you have to own that, and you have to be um, always referring back to that. And so, you know, in terms of a, a, a process around that, I mean, that to me is just prioritization, right? It's, like, getting really clear on prioritization, but then having that prioritization transparent to the organization, transparent to your stakeholders, transparent to your, your peers, your team, etc. You know, so you always are referring back to the same list of things. Everybody's working on the same list. I think is, is really important. Any company, I, I don't care if you're big or small, it's really easy to generate a lot of ideas and get distracted by the, the flashy thing. And so I think it takes a lot of discipline to kind of always refer back to, okay, this is what's important. How are we going to always operate to that? Or how are we going to all get agreement by we're ready to change it. You will use that through your entire product career. I think it's a good answer and why I'm, you know, maybe pressing around about this in particular is because I think there is a pressure for all of us product managers to do it right, which I put in parentheses, whatever that means. And in, in so many ways, it's still, it's an old profession, but it's a new profession. It's a known profession, but it's a mysterious profession. Part of what we're doing on 100 PM is trying to demystify it and make it more accessible and, and invitational. But I think that part of that fear that you describe when you say, you know, don't be afraid, just kind of go and start something or try it comes from, well, I don't know how to do a roadmap. 
right? Or I don't know if this is the right format or I don't know. And so you're always sort of looking for a clue of like, how does somebody else do it? But I think certainly in my experience, how somebody else does it doesn't always provide the right clue either. Have you ever felt that like sense of, am I doing it right? Are they doing it right? Are any of us doing it right? I mean, you've done it a long time now. Can I just say every day? (laughs) I mean, that's, I think, quick aside, I think that's the thing that I just love about products so much is that I always feel like I have something to learn. You know, I always feel like I've never mastered it because there's so, the problems are so complex and so deep. You know, in terms of like, am I doing it right? I truly believe that there's no right way. There's no right way, there's no wrong way. You know, and and so much of what a company is and what a company becomes and what a product is and what it becomes has to do with the people that are owning it and guiding it. It's great to have KPIs and it's great to have OKRs and it's great to have specific metrics you're trying to work towards. But there's lots and lots of different ways to skin a cat. And what you're trying to do for yourself is just get just a little bit more information with each decision you make. You know, you're just trying to get that just a little bit more validation to know am I headed in the right direction or not. And so when it comes to kind of internal structures or processes or et cetera, et cetera, prioritization, roadmap, et cetera, put something out there, hear people's feedback, and then figure out is that feedback helpful or not? Does it actually drive to the outcome I'm trying to achieve? Or is it something that's just noise and people are, I don't like green, I want blue, you know, that type of thing. I'm like, sweet, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for telling me. That doesn't help. You know, and then when you're when you're trying to, to get something out the door for new consumers or for your, you know, in consumers being, you know, B2C, B2B, I don't care. It's how do you get a, a test scenario out just to get a little bit more information to make sure that you're validating the next step, you know, make sure that you're headed in the right direction. So using kind of some terminology that I use here is like we do paper prototypes. So when we have an idea before we actually code it, can I write it up? Can I describe what it is? Can I show it to somebody and get their feedback on that to know am I even on the right track or not? Because I don't want to waste any of my developers' time. I don't even want to waste like really product time to do any of this stuff if it's not going to be beneficial. And then kind of moving through like you have paper prototype and then you you know your alpha, your beta, and GA. Those tools and that feedback process is so valuable because again you're just you're creating optionality for yourself. The more information you have, the more indication you'll have to know kind of what direction you go. So how do you give yourself that luxury, how do you give yourself and get that information in your hip pocket so you can you can know where to go? In that prototype sort of lineage that you just described, what's the earliest or crudest stage that you would take an idea out into the street, so to speak, and show it to a customer for feedback? So again, my expertise is more on the B2B side, so I can speak from that that angle. It's Honestly, who are your friendlies? Like, who are the, the companies that you have really good relationships with? You have to have some, right? <laughs> hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully you have a lot. I was going to say, hopefully a lot, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You have to have at least some. So who are your friendlies? And then, you know, have, have an idea, turn around and be like, hey, we're thinking about this. What's your gut reaction? Give me a blink reaction. Good, bad, you know, yes or no. Does it pass the sniff test? That's about as low fidelity as I think I can get. But like I said, like, to get the idea in front of them. I like to do kind of, here's a write-up. And I know that Amazon does the, the press release before they build the product. So it's a little bit about the press release. It's a little bit about like, hey, this is the value you're going to get. This is the way in which we think the product's going to work. This is the work that it's going to take for you. This is, the, you know, this is what we think the lifts might be. Can we just talk through this? You know, give us your reaction to it. If it's something that they're going to actually kind of like a dashboard or 
a feature or something that they're going to interact with, can you do a um, really like mock wireframes? I mean, there's no secret to this, right? It's literally just getting examples in front of people and having them react. And then, you know, you move from mock wireframes into, you know, the bigger, the more interactive, you know, prototypes and things like that. Right. Well, no, I, 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 there's no secret to it. Or maybe there is a secret to it. Maybe, maybe folks are listening going, no, say, these are the secrets. We've there been there are no secrets. Right. I, I truly believe it's just hard work. Right. Well, why I like that example is it's a great example of how minimum viable products or experiments or facades can continue to be part of your toolkit even when you go beyond the initial idea, the sort of initial should we stop or should we go, and, you know, finding clever ways to say, well, let's just, like, do a mock-up, send a note, and if our clients all write back and say, please don't, we won't do this, that's a good experiment. Yeah. It can be that kind of small and, and crude sometimes, but I think especially why I asked you the question is I think when it is B2B, sometimes the stakes can feel a little higher. I don't know why that is. Maybe just because B to C is a certain kind of horizontal scale. It's like, I need a hundred thousand people to be mad about this before I, I let it rock me too much or, or wherever. Whereas in B2B, it's like if one big account doesn't like it, that could be significant, statistically significant. So I, I think that's that's good. It's all about how to break it down into the smaller parts so you're not making the big ads first, right? But I, I think the feedback process isn't isn't so unique in the B2B world. You know, you can use a lot of the same frameworks in both. Tell us about ShopRunner for, for folks listening who haven't heard about it. ShopRunner, we're a free two-day shipping uh, offering and we work with retailers like Neiman Marcus, Saks, Toy Burge, Kate Spade, etc. And if you're a member of the, the ShopRunner network um, as a customer, you can go to those websites and you can get free two-day shipping. So it costs $79 to sign up. We like to think of us, ourselves as more of that in the luxury apparel space as a strong competitor against Amazon Prime. Right. Um, so it's been it's been tons of fun. I mean, you know, we talk about marketplaces a little bit. You know, we're absolutely kind of that two-sided marketplace. We have I'm on the merchant side, so my relationships are all with all of our merchants. And then we have a consumer side where we're building out really great products and tools and capabilities and services. Does it ever feel, you know, because you are sort of, you know, Amazon is Goliath. Oh, and, yeah. you know, it's like you turn around, press release. Amazon just spent X billion buying a whole industry while we were sleeping. And I guess what I want to feel into is what it takes to keep focusing on differentiation, keep focusing on value creation, even when it can feel like you're looking at a giant tidal wave that wants to come crashing down on you. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Amazon spends 13 to $14 billion a year just on R&D. I mean, it's insane because Apple's entire e-commerce is $13 billion. Walmart's entire e-commerce business 13 billion, you know, and that Amazon's like, oh, that's cute. That's just our D budget. <laughs> so drop in the bucket for playing with stuff. <laughs> that's exactly it. I'm like, oh my gosh, how are we even going to compete? But we have great relationships with emergence. We have great technology and we're, del we're delivering real, real value, you know, really real value to both. And so my feeling is, is as long as we can figure out, you know, continually kind of inspect and evaluate, like, where are we, where do we sit in this ecosystem? Are we actually delivering value? Are we helping the merchants in our network? be better at what they ultimately want to do, which is selling more products, 
always keep that kind of customer centricity up front and, and know exactly kind of, hey, we can help. So thinking about B2B and remembering to, to some of my early experiences with it, part of it is remembering that it's still a bunch of people. It's still a bunch of customers, even under the umbrella of what is a company. But your clients, the customers that you take care of here at ShopRunner, are the enterprise side. They're the companies. They're the Neiman Marcuses, etc. And meanwhile, ShopRunner itself is, is yet another growth stage company. You're not enterprise, but you're servicing enterprise. Is that a, a challenge in finding a right rhythm? Because when you were at Orbitz, you were much more, I would imagine, in league with many of the clients that you worked with from a scale perspective. Even just to use your reference from earlier, you all know the weight of process. You all have strategy decks. You have that shared vernacular. Now you've been playing in this early stage growth space. You're much more nimble. You love that. That's why you're here. But you have these clients that aren't that. Does that trip you up ever? That's exactly what the opportunity is. Okay. And, and I think it's actually really, really funny. I have two examples to share with you. One is just kind of the broad market space. I mean, we're working with retailers that, like I said, are experts at fashion or, or retail at selling, like a lot of the brick and mortar. We're not experts at technology. We're experts at technology. We have great technologists and great product people here. So we can fill that. You know, We can be an extension of their R&D. We can be really great partners in terms of like checking out what's on the horizon. And so we find that actually the dialogue is, is a lot better, you know, because of our, our size and our nimbleness and because of our focus. So the second example that I was going to share, kind of much more specific, we were talking to a very large company that all of us know that might rhyme with Schmoogle. <laughs> and there's always conversations with lots of companies, right? But we we're talking about, you know, potentially can we partner in a handful of different ways? And you know, we asked, well, why would you work with us? You know, we're a T-Tiny shop runner, and, you know, we're the David and Goliath, you know, we're trying to fight the big guy. And this company was like, we're, we're a big company now. We've got a lot of innovation, but we, we don't move as fast as we used to, and you're able to move really, really fast. And so I like to think of it as an asset. You know, I like to think of it as we don't have to be big. I mean, you look at what Snapchat was, right? It didn't, didn't wasn't Snapchat tiny, you know, when they first started or Instagram. Like now, they're swallowing up all of Venice, and people are mad. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I don't think, you know, again, the enablement that software and technology and the internet and devices and et cetera, the enablement that all of that brings to us is it, it means that you don't have to be a huge company to actually really carve off like a really interesting business and to to, to deliver real value. And so I, I, I do like to think of where we are as actually a really strong asset. I don't think we need thousands of people to actually be really effective at what we're going to do. Could you ever go back into that type of environment now, having been in these smaller, more agile places? I think it would be hard. Yeah. I think it would be hard. I, I, I can imagine it, it would be nice to maybe go to a bigger company at some point, again, to have a little bit more, you know, to have that, 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 that people and that network around you a little bit more to where you're not maybe living on the edge as much as you do. But it's so great to build a team, to be a part of a team, and to, to go through this. I mean, that's the that's the thing that I think is so important is, like, you, there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts in life. There's no shortcuts in what we do. And, you know, being a company of this size, it's you got to do the hard work. you got to roll up your sleeves. you got to be a part of it. And But what comes out on the other side is just what's 
so rewarding about it. And you, you can make a difference. You can make a real difference. Every individual, right now we're about 60 people, every individual that we hire right now is such a big deal. And I don't care what your title is or who you are, every individual that comes along that joins our company makes such a big difference. And that, I think, it attracts certain type of people. <laughs> and, you know, if you're that type of person, come aboard and, you know, let's do awesome things together. Right. You said something to me in one of our earlier conversations. The, the quote was, bringing the human into what you do. Would you speak to what is the meaning behind that for you? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I know early in my career, even, you know, kind of me interviewing at freaking AB and AMRO and kind of all these banks, like, I was, I was following what I was told would be good. You know, what I was told would be, like, that seems like a good career move for you, and, you know, you should go do that. You'll make lots of money. And, you know, what I've realized in my career is when I start to maybe start to listen to myself, my own intuition a little bit more, I've found success and I've found the right opportunity. You know, so as soon as I have, and I'll make this more concrete in a second, but as soon as I kind of start to listen to that that part inside of me, that voice inside of me saying, maybe you want to think about this. And as soon as I actually able, am able to articulate it and maybe talk to my friends or talk to my network about it, it's amazing where, you know, kind of external starts to be internal and I start to find the opportunities that are right for me. And so, you know, being a little bit more specific, you know, I took a job once because it was, you know, had a product role and it was title and opportunity, et cetera, but it wasn't the right fit for me, you know, and so I looked a little bit more at the form factor of it as opposed to the, the nature of it, the people of it, and the opportunity of it, and that experience was really hard. It was really hard. Um, it was a great company, but really hard for me to have lived through, and so, you know, when I turn around and I think about it, I'm like, title isn't worth it, you know, like, the wrong fit isn't worth it. Sometimes you have to live through it um, to learn that. I did it, but you know, it's, it's not worth it to try to follow what somebody else says is a, a good opportunity for you. You have to figure out kind of internally what you really want to do and what you're really good at. But you also have to be willing to roll up your sleeves, do the hard work. And my feeling is, is like you can be in a high-performance environment and still be yourself. You can be in a hard-hitting kind of environment that's absolutely you know, succeeding and if you need to, if you have to, you work long hours you, you know, that, that are demanded of you. But you can also be quirky and funky and make horrible jokes and you know, have piercings or tattoos. You, you can find a balance in those two things and you can find environments where those things fit. And I think it's really, really important to make sure that you stay true to yourself kind of in your job search process, in your you know, product development process. Because I think ultimately what you're gonna do is you're gonna find success. Um, and you're going to do a great job, and people are going to value you for who you are. And those things will work together to, to create a great career path for you. Yeah, I think that's beautifully put and great advice. And a nice segue to a piece that I like to do called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. But I want to ask you this question. What advice would you give to somebody for finding what's right for you? Because what you're describing is kind of like the reverse intelligence. I went to a place that, that sucked for me and it was painful and now I know I never want to be in that. Is there anything that somebody listening in could do now, especially if they're early in their career or, or starting to think about a, a change that could help them get connected with possibly what is the right environment for them? 
I think, especially with product, you have to be fascinated by the, the nature of the product, right? Or, or the, um, the space, the domain, right? So I'm right now, I work for Shoprunner right now. I love it. Like, I love fashion. I love apparel. I love e-commerce. Orbitz, I loved e-commerce. I love travel. You know, like, these were industries and problem spaces that I just, I loved. I could really get behind. So the work that I did and do now kind of in these spaces is all, it's all helping me learn more about these areas that I really like. And so I think you really do have to be true to yourself and where you're trying to grow your product career. I will never be successful in healthcare. I, you know, healthcare is just not a challenge that's interesting to me. But I'm very thankful that there are a lot of people out there that it is. You know, right. same thing with education technology. You know, and I was talking to a friend last night about legal technology. You know, those are spaces that just aren't a fascination for me. And so I'm not going to read about it. I'm not going to learn. I'm not going to educate myself on the industry. I'm not going to know the key players. But you know, in these areas, like I said, travel, fashion, those things for me are very, very interesting. I get behind it. And I enjoy talking about it. I do believe it's like, you know, you have your 40 hours, you know, weekly on, on the job, but you make friends with people you work with, you think about your job at night, you think about it on the weekend. And so think about how much your job is really going to be a part of who you are and make sure that it aligns. I think that's good advice. And, and I've spoken to people who have had similar paths where they, they just say, well, I love football. So I was like, how can I be in football somehow? Do you think that if you're not a user of the product, that it fundamentally prevents you from being great at being the product manager for that product? No. No. I don't think so. I mean, I think that's where empathy comes in. I think you have to educate yourself. I think you have to um, you have to do the hard work. If it, if it isn't something natural or like, hey, I can log on to work, I can see what the path is, I travel, you know, then you have to do the hard work to go learn the context in which your users are. So you have to go out, you have to find them, you have to sit with them, you have to follow them, you have to observe them, see them in their natural environment. Because if you don't, then you're not going to understand. You're not going to be able to understand the context of the user, and you're not going to be able to represent that effectively from a product perspective. But I don't think you ultimately have to be a user of your product to, to be successful. I think you can find success other ways. You say you make mistakes. <laughs> Tell us about one or two that, that you've made that give our, our listeners a pass so that they can say, oh, thanks for giving me a heads up. Now I won't make that mistake. <laughs> Margaret made it for me. Oh, my gosh, I wish. Um, that's a good question. I mean, one of the first things that comes to my mind, and I know better, and I'm just I'm still thinking myself, you know, a few weeks ago, my CEO, who's amazing and awesome and, and brilliant, like he... He has an idea that you know we're trying to share with some of our merchants to help build business, right? To help convert users, and he's he's talked to me several times about it. And he's like, you know, are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And he finally was like, are we really going to do this? Can we prioritize it? You know, because I'm selling it. I'm like, yeah, in done. Did I talk to my product people? <laughs> Did I talk to my developers? Did I talk to you know kind of the the lead engineers? Like, kind of broad brush strokes. But, you know, I turned around and committed to my CEO that we're going to do this and he's out selling it. And I did not, like, walk the walk there and, like, go back and, like, really validate, like, do we have the bandwidth? Is this a priority? What else is on our, our roadmap? What else is on our backlog? You know, I just said yes. And it was because he really wanted to do it and it's hard to say no, you know, so. Well, you also, you talked earlier, it seems like you have a history of, like, say yes and then figure it out later. Yes. So that's, a, that's an old habit. 
So were you able to do it? Did you go back to the team and they were like, uh, Margaret, no, <laughs> we can't do this. We haven't tackled it yet. Okay. Oh, they don't even know. They're going to hear this episode. They're going to be like, oh, she's a shithead. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, they know enough now. Um, we're going through kind of the prioritization process to where we're getting kind of everything in the mix. And so, you know, Sam's going to come back and be like, oh, wait, this that I thought was so important, why is it now 28th on the list? So we're going we're gonna to have that conversation we haven't had it yet. Again, product, at least 10 years, 17 years in my career, and I still make those types of mistakes. I mean, you're human. You know, this is, this, I say so often, you have to be a masochist to be in product. You know, <laughs> to want to be a product man- manager, you are a masochist because you please all of the people none of the time. You know, everybody wants something. Everybody, there's always pain points. I mean, your job is to solve for pain points. And so it's hard to be the person that says no, that, that tightens the belt, that says we only have limited time, bandwidth, resources, et cetera. But, you know, when you get it right and as you get it right, it's so rewarding. You know, I think it's a little bit probably like gambling, right? Like where you're like, oh, man, I hit the big one. You know, I nailed it. Like people are using my product and they like it. You know, like that, that joy you feel is is really, it's, it's, it makes it all worth it. Yeah, that's the, the variable reward and the hooked model that keeps us putting the quarter back into the, It's like nine, nine out of 10 startups fail, which I still think is a generous statistic. Nine out of 10 fail, but here we are plunking quarters saying, maybe I'm the next Instagram, maybe I'm the next Snapchat. So if product management is masochism, why keep torturing yourself for 19 years? There must be a reason you love the job. I, you know, it's, it, I, I think it's that build side of it. It's, it's I'm such a builder. Like I love like I love creating something and having that reward. And I like I love the context switching. I mean, context switching sucks. Don't get me wrong. Like you need time to think about stuff. But you know, as a product person, you you have to think about so many things. I mean, you have to be good at business. You have to be good at tech. You have to be good at user. You have to be good at empathy. You have to be good at relationships. I mean, you also have to have. I mean, you have to put your ego in check, right? You have to put that aside and you have to be like, I don't know what's best. I have to listen. I have to hear. And I'm probably going to get it wrong. I'm probably going to get it a lot wrong a lot before I get it right. It's like, you know, you're, you're kind of that glue amongst this entire organization and across like this entire ecosystem of consumers and users. But yet, you know, you're always kind of on that edge of like, I'm probably getting it wrong and I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> and all of it. So it's it's, I think that, that, that drive kind of around all of it to make it right and to gr- make great experiences for others is just, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And again, a constant learning, constant learning. I, I'm still always a work in progress. Any recommended resources for folks listening to our show, books, blogs, podcasts, just general good suggestions for learning? I mean, I think there's probably, you probably have covered a lot of the, the big ones. I mean, absolutely, Silicon Valley Product Group. You know, I've, I'm kind of listening to the Mind the Product stuff and paying attention to that. You know, it's some of the, the books that I've read, like I'm an avid reader, um, some of the books I read kind of have really some, like focused on more of, you know, kind of who, who are you and how do you create your life and your own best life. But I think it's really kind of leaked into kind of my product experience. And so, like I said, like talking about ego, there's a great book called Ego's Enemy by Ryan Holiday. You know, and it's all about like, hey, you know what? You can't follow somebody else's path because you're gonna get it wrong. Because that's somebody else's path. You gotta, you gotta figure out how to listen to yourself to get to your own. There's a great book called But What If We're Wrong by Chuck Klosterman. That one's fascinating because he basically takes kind of like a future look at today 
and says, hey, what are people in 50 years or 100 years going to look back at our culture today and say what is important? Just as much as we look back and say, hey, Moby Dick is the book to read, how, you know, from, from a, you know, best literary novels of, of the 20th century, like, how did that decision happen? And how are you going to get it wrong? Because if you, if you try to kind of evaluate today's things with today's viewpoint, you're going to get it wrong. But if you try to kind of play it out into the future a little bit and, and realize, like, the mindset in 50 years or 100 years can be very different, how they're going to evaluate today is, um, it's just kind of mind-blowing, the way, the way he kind of positions that point of view. So, so I think people in the future are going to be looking back at a lot of what's happening in tech right now and saying, I can't believe those folks that were doing tech in the mid-early <laughs> 2000s were doing, look what they destroyed. Look how they- <laughs> Well, just like I went back 17 years and I'm like, I had my box with my DVD and my CD and I taught myself <laughs> how to code with a book. I mean, like, oh my gosh, how much has it changed in 17 years? You know, what it's going to be in 50 years you know, a hundred is amazing. This is the, also the thing that I think is so fascinating about product is that I still feel like we're so early in this as a, as a discipline, as a practice. I mean, people like yourself, like having, like doing a hundred podcasts, like this is helping advance us, you know, as a community. And it's, it's helping us be better at our craft. And I'm, I, you know, I think it's going to be crazy how much better we're going to be in 20 years. Cause I, I would say kind of technology product, it's really come about only in the past year. So, so these resources are still very, very new, very early life cycle. Great recommends. We'll put them up on our website, 100productmanagers.com slash resources for anyone listening in. Uh, last question for you. Have you picked up along the way a soundbite or mantra that helps us to understand who you are in the world? You know, I, I think I don't really share it with a lot of people, but it, it's, I often say to myself, the only way out is through. Um, you know, so like, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, it's, you can't avoid the hard things. You know, you're not going to avoid messing up. You're not going to avoid failing. You're not going to avoid pain. You're not going to avoid trauma and misery and kind of all of those things. Those are all kind of part of life, you know. And so th- there's, no, there's no free ride here. There's no easy success. Being a product manager is hard. And you're not you're not going to have the vision handed to you. You're not going to have clarity handed to you. Um, so you have to fight for it. You have to put yourself out there and, and and get that clarity yourself. You know. And again, there's no shortcuts in that. So you just you've got to you got to kind of be present and you've got to live in it and you got to be part of it and you got to realize like kind of the, the journey is the thing you've got to live through. Margaret Jastrzewski goddess of the Chicago PM (laughs) Thank you for your leadership specifically. I know there are so many people who are grateful for the leadership that you've brought through the years being such a part of this community. Thank you for being a part of our show and sharing your insights. Really grateful. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you enjoyed the show, please help us get discovered by leaving a five-star rating and review right from your podcast app. Our mission is to help you excel at product management. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great free resources to help you on your path, including all of the recommendations from our fabulous guests week over week. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode.